Welcome to episode 63 of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. I'm Drew Grizzik, and we're here today with a special guest co-host, Kim Hansing, CEO of Signal FM. Thanks so much for joining us, Kim. Hey, no problem. Glad to be here. Uh, hey, guys, this is my first episode. It's been a while since I've been on a podcast, so, you know, this is going to be fun. So I remember, uh, and some of our listeners may remember, James had encouraged me to go out to startup drinks, and I wasn't really sure what to expect, but it ended up being really cool. One of the reasons was I got to meet you and you were working on a new platform for podcasts or something like that. Uh, and then the next thing I know, a year or so goes by and then uh, I hear about this uh, speech to text stuff that you're doing, which seems awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about both of those things? Well, for Signal FM, um, yeah, when you and I first met, the idea was to do sort of a WebRTC, which is a, a real-time communications um, framework, uh, and uh, allow people to record podcasts remotely because right now, of course, you have to wire up Skype and it's this whole weird thing, right? Unfortunately, WebRTC sucks, so we kind of put it on the shelf. What we're doing right now is um, we're taking a bunch of different speech-to-text platforms and a bunch of just a sort of machine learning, TensorFlow, all that other good stuff, and kind of wiring it all together to, yeah, um, transcribe podcasts, because, of course, then you get all the beautiful SEO, and you get the ability to search within a podcast. And hey, by the way, you can clip out this text and share it out, and people can then read rather than listen, because that's obviously the point of podcasts. <laughs> well, it's really cool. I was listening to one, I can't remember which one it was, but you were talking about... Um, about what you did and about machine learning. And I think Watson uh, got brought up and uh, there was some mention that I thought was really interesting. You'd said that um, the the difference, I think, in variation between male voices and female voices, um, that there's that men tend to fluctuate more, uh, whereas women tend to fluctuate less, Yeah, uh, I believe. But then you went on to say that that actually didn't have any bearing on the ability to uh, transcribe from speech to text, but maybe... Um, more about the listener's engagement? Well, uh, it, it does have a minimal effect. Um, and actually, since then, we've done a ton of experimentation on different voices. Guess who's really bad at being transcribed? You. No, I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no black women. If you're oh, a black okay. woman, mm -hmm. you are going to have a bad time with transcription. And it's just the, it's just the training base. That's really interesting. I heard a, um, I heard go time. Yeah. Or I was listening to Go Time that uh, one of the episodes was transcribed and I was watching that. And it was interesting because most of the normal pronunciations of the words were fine. But when there was any sort of variation, I don't know any sort of variation. One of the things I noticed was I think he was saying something like, it's go time. Something like that in, in a very unnatural sort of way. Yeah. And that ended up being a little bit garbled. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and the crazy part is, is that that's actually the stuff that you really want to nail because you're sitting there going, he's been saying it's for like a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. If you mess this up transcription, I am not going to be happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the challenges with that? I could imagine that if you are saying it's for that long, it's kind of not a normal thing. Um. Well, like, there, you know, we... 
if you've been working in this area at all, um, you will have seen sort of the quality of transcription at this point. And if you if you're a person from the Midwest or from Canada, uh, and you're speaking quite slowly and clearly, you're gonna you're gonna be like ninety three, ninety five percent accurate, which is really good, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, the second that you deviate at all from that in terms of accent, or there's some music playing, or you're doing creative things with your voice or whatever, it's, it's just gonna nosedive. Um, I'd kind of thought of that when thinking about the Turing test. The Turing test, it seems to me, is something that that's been thought up for interacting with a human person that's fluent in your language and your culture, uh, and a machine that is also uh, trying to be fluent in your language and your culture. Right. And I thought, you know, different ways to sort of mess with this system to make it more difficult would be put a seven-year-old Chinese child, for example, at the other end <laughs> and try and figure out which one is the machine and which one's the person. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that intelligence is not only intelligent, but also intelligent in your way of communicating is maybe oh. something that's different from, you know, just intelligent at communicating. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. And yeah, like I, I, when I put on text to speech, I will always do it in like an Australian or French accent because mm-hmm. it's so hard for my English ears to hear that this French accented person is actually saying stuff wrong. It's mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah. I mean, the the fact of the matter is, is, is these things aren't intelligent enough to pick up like gnome saying, like right. you're going to be like gnome saying. Mm-hmm. saying of gnomes <laughs> uh but they're getting there um but for for all intents and purposes it does it doesn't matter that much because okay two two three years from now it's going to be sort jaw-droppingly good for mm-hmm. sure um and in the meantime you can put in these shims like hey you know we know that it fails in these specific circumstances so we're going to layer in some other stuff to like mm-hmm. make sure that's good or or just get human beings to fix it up, right? Like if you've played the game Katamari Damashi, right? The whole ideal is that you're rolling this ball around in like a living room, for instance, and you're picking up the junk of it, right? People like to clean things up once they're at kind of like an okay level. You're like, oh, this room is perfect except for this one thing. This sentence is perfect except for the question mark is missing. Mm -hmm. Let me just add that, no problem. So the, the answer is, State state of the art technology is still not really that impressive right now, but it it doesn't matter. <laughs> These days, I'm starting to use speech to text more and more in my daily life. Yeah, you know, I'll say, uh, for example, "Okay, Google, remind me to listen to this podcast when I get home." Yeah, I really like that that I can say when I get to work or when I get home, and I can see that having this speech to text recognition is one of the steps or one of the building blocks in starting to create or in creating, and I guess it is part of, more intelligent machines. Um, now, what is what does it look like, or what are the steps required to go from uh, some sort of speech-to-text to actually having that ability to learn, regardless of the type of speech, you know, whether you're coming from a sort of dialect or a different language altogether, but then to be able to pick that up. So if, for example, I had a program that was trained in recognizing standard English, yeah. then going from that to adding maybe a dialect in New Zealand in the countryside versus something like just adding a new language altogether. Okay, so there's a few answers to that. Right now, it's it's basically a matter of training. It's just exposure. So right now today, you and I are talking on this podcast and uh, say this podcast is about pineapples, whatever, and 
we record and then we we notice that it's not picking up the word pineapple, so we correct it up and, and send it back up to the brain. Um, then next time it'll make the guess of pineapple instead, right? And that holds true for any any language, any accent. It's actually very agnostic that way. It doesn't really know what it's hearing at all. It just knows that this sound is this combination of characters. Now, if you went down to CES this year, you would have seen Alexa plastered all over everything, right? And like that, that the toothbrushes had had your you know microphones on them, but um, that's the other half of that equation. So there's a speech to text, which is which is actually quite stupid. Mm-hmm. It's just sound to word, um, and then there's the next step, which is word or whatever combination of bits say um, equals instruction, and and yeah, the the equals instruction is probably. Um, the the thing with programming for this stuff is that you really have to understand your audience. I've met a lot of the guys that are working on this stuff, and I will say that they're probably not thinking about slang in the interior of BC, for instance. Now, all of those steps, whether it is sort of the dumb speech to text, where it's still pretty smart, I think, being able to match sound to to words. Um, or maybe some of the more advanced pattern recognition. Um, Neural nets and all the other good mm-hmm. stuff, yeah. Why is that important? Where is that going? Oh, interesting. Okay, so you and I talking for an hour, uh, we'll put down around 10,000 words, mm-hmm. okay? So that's a doctoral thesis, right? Right. Now, um, I'm I'm looking at, you know, uh, you have conversations, there's podcasts, there's movies and TV, and, you know, we spend an incredible amount of time consuming um, voice-based communication, mm-hmm. right, and producing it. But once it's kind of out there, it's just ephemeral. It's gone. You know, anyone listening to this podcast, hey, hello, you're never going to hear my voice saying these words ever again. Uh, and probably no one, no one is going to hear these words after the first month or so, right? Because there's no way to look it up. It doesn't connect up to the internet in any way. The web is made of links. You cannot link audio effectively. Um, and even when you do, it's still like, who's going to consume it? Mm -hmm. Hey, someone just linked me a half hour of audio. I, I have a busy life. (laughs) I'm not going (laughs) to, I'm sorry. I like you, Drew, but like, I just don't care. Right. Right. Um, so you you combine these two ideas of this incredible amount of information being produced all the time mm-hmm. and then say hey look now we can make it accessible to the internet in the way that things on the internet are accessible and my my thinking is that the information explosion that we saw from between before the internet and after the internet mm-hmm is going to be the same orders of magnitude explosion we will see once voice-based communication is accessible to the internet. Particularly the World Wide Web, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the idea of linking words in documents to other documents. Now, this is kind of that step with audio. Right. Now, that also brings up an interesting question, perhaps. As you're training these programs, does the speed at which you're playing the audio back or that that it's listening, does that matter or can it parse it very quickly? And I guess what I'm wondering is, would it be relevant to, say, play back the audio from a thousand different television shows simultaneously to pick up things? And would that be able to process that? And could you play it at 100 times speed and have that still have the sort of learning go on that would enable average speed speaking? Well, we played with a, we played with a little bit. I'm not mm-hmm. going to say exhaustively 
Um, and, but basically, no, like basically it comprehends, it actually comp, this stuff comprehends, um, maybe like three quarters speed to mm-hmm. normal human speaking speed. Uh, uh, sorry, excuse me. The other way around. Um, if, if your, if your thing is an hour long, it'll take like 45 minutes to process normally. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's, that's just a matter of CPU though. Right. So we actually, yeah. we, uh, hooked up, um, this like 64, uh, core GPU mm-hmm. the other day and and had it uh, running and it was it was like five minutes sort of thing versus the forty five minutes that it usually takes on my on my Mac laptop right right so so a lot of this is just you know like how many GPUs can we throw in this <laughs> uh, so what about this past week what have you been working on what's something that uh, maybe has been challenging or stuck out or some of the thoughts uh, in Kim's mind this week. On Friday, we Signal FM and Launch Academy teamed up to have the Seattle Angel Conference uh, up, and they actually were driving during that crazy storm. And I felt really bad because it's a bunch of angel investors that are sort of putting their life on the line <laughs> to come talk to Vancouver. That was fabulous. Uh, Launch Academy was very gracious, and and that all worked out super good. I'm very interested in continuing to build that relationship between Seattle and Vancouver and obviously vice versa because um, I think that as Canadians um, in in the startup scene and in the tech scene and in general, we maybe have a fairly narrow worldview where we're just willing to accept these ideas that you can't do something big or you can't do something interesting or risky or whatever. So my journey is like Halifax, uh, hint into Halifax to Vancouver, effectively. Mm-hmm. And Halifax, my God, like just just nothing, nothing happens ever. Um, but the further you travel down the, you know, here on the West Coast, the more people are willing to say, like, you know, let's let's actually figure out the scene. Let's figure out the problem, our user base, everything else. Let's actually analyze the risk and make a calculated decision to do something interesting. Right. Um, and and the more that we can think like that, you know, this is this is a super interesting town. The indie game scene here is incredible. The tech community is incredible. We've got a lot of talent. And with the political situation down in the United States right now, that's only going to become truer. I totally agree. I think things are really coming together increasingly more and more in Vancouver and in Vancouver's tech scene. We had a hackathon last week, I believe. And we got people together with some different ideas. Two of the main ideas that came out of that. um, So the hackathon was geared toward things are changing in the States, particularly for immigrants and refugees. What can we do as developers in Canada to help people who've been affected by this? And it's kind of hard because what do you do? Do you build the next Twitter uh, and say, you know, tweet to each other when you're in detention because that sounds fun or you know i mean there's some silly ideas but two ideas came out that really had some traction or uh have potential i think one was the idea of a um an inclusivity unicode character or uh icon uh emoticon i think it was uh, a heart with i9y for inclusivity and you could kind of put that on a job posting or on your resume or even on your Facebook status or in tweets. And that kind of shows we're open, we're, uh, we're down with everyone. Sure, sure. Uh, and I thought that was actually really good. It's, a, it's sort of a small gesture, but I think 
um, you compound that by having enough people involved and that becomes a really big gesture and it becomes uh, a way of just showing openness and then when other people see that if you see you know oh look people that i look up to companies that i look up to are including this inclusivity and and the concepts behind that well i should too it's okay for me to do that too it's okay to to have tolerance or or to be accepting or the other one was a recruiting company how do you do something that makes a difference especially in a political sort of or you know helping immigrants come to canada or refugees come to canada how do you do that without the bottleneck of trying to involve the government and the bureaucracy. How do you do that without involving the government or without being a charity? Or how do you do that and actually be self-sustaining? Something that there is a lot of uh, in the States and around the world are people in tech, immigrants uh, and refugees potentially who have a technical background that we could uh, recruit and use the recruitment fee to help other people who maybe weren't in tech and, and maybe uh, aren't as valuable to recruit to tech companies immediately, but definitely would be valuable to our country to have. So the other thing with that was we thought, can we get 10 local companies to agree to work with us? Well, it's hard. You know, if you want to recruit somebody locally uh, versus recruit somebody from a different country, what are the what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you have to pay a sponsorship fee, you have to do a bunch of paperwork, and you have to wait a long time. So the waiting a long time is something maybe we could work with the government and, and sort something out. But as far as the paperwork, most of that we could probably automate. So we'd be spending our time on automating the paperwork, and then the sponsorship fees mm-hmm. could be taken out of the recruiting fees to make the costs uh equal or or the same and try and take all of the pain away from that and then the other part was maybe an open source component would be some sort of filter that you could use even if you were working with like monster.com or craigslist or or another recruiting company but you have a filter that you run everything through that screens for biases Uh, for example you might see somebody has a master's of computing science from university of teheran and that might give you a bias uh, oh, so we take away the yeah. university. You know, you might see Stanford versus UBC. That's for interesting. Um, so take away the biases and try and evaluate on what matters. Do you ever know about the, I don't remember which symphony it was. I think it was New York. They ended up putting the violinist behind a curtain when they were auditioning because they were finding that they would never get women violinists. Hmm. And once it was just the sound and they couldn't see the person, then suddenly it was it was roughly equal. And so, yeah, that's the the targeted obfuscation is kind yeah. of a cool idea. On the one hand, it's kind of unfortunate that we need to do that. But on the other hand, it's incredibly fortunate that we're able to identify things mm-hmm. like that and to be able to build things around it. Um, those two ideas, anyway, were, were really great ideas that came out. And we're kind of pushing to build support groups with the people that came out and make sure to keep the ball rolling. Um, and we're continuing with that. So we've also teamed up with Open Data BC, ProtoHack. And the open media as well, and and maybe more to come. And we're looking at having kind of the second installation of that and carrying it forward uh, on March fourth, Open Data Day, in conjunction with the open uh, the Vancouver Open Data Day Hackathon, where we're also going to be bringing out mentors from the community. Yeah. So people typically in senior positions in technology, either as you know engineers, as business developers, or finance, who will come out and people will pitch their product. And these people in the senior positions, yeah. the advisory board, basically the pitch should be kind of like a Dragon's Den style to uh, present the product for 
you know, an hour of advising time per week. Did you go to any meetups? Um, I observed that there were meetups happening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited for full indie next week because mm-hmm. I just can't give up the, the indie games community. It's just so good. There's mm-hmm. so many great people. So that's happening next Wednesday, I think, at the Butcher and Bullock. So, yeah, I've got Wednesday for me next week I'm super excited about, but uh, I've got a big, a tough choice to make, I think. There's the .NET user group of BC. Um, so the other one that I'm actually really interested in as well, which is happening at the same time that I think actually I'm going to go to, is the Docker Vancouver meetup. So that's happening Wednesday at 5.30. It's over at Hootsuite. That's our meetups around town. Yeah. And we're here with our special guest, Peter Watkins, co-founder of the BC Developers Exchange. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Thanks very much, Drew. It's nice to be here. And uh, you just got into town. You flew in special. Ferried in special? Ferried in special. All the way from our province's capital. Victoria, British Columbia. Ooh, very nice. So, Peter, I'm super fascinated in what you're doing and what the BC Developers Exchange not only is, but what it represents uh, both from the government side and to uh, the people uh, that get a chance to be involved in it and where we see this going. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what is the BC Developers Exchange, first of all? And let's start with that. So the the Developer Exchange, I'm super excited about it myself. So, I mean, it's just an awesome privilege uh, to to be able to lead something like this. Uh, So really, it's the idea of uh, trying to find a way for the public sector in British Columbia to help grow our, our own awesome tech industry that we have in the province. And the, and, and the question sort of in play is whether the public sector in BC has something by way of a digital asset. could be data. That's an easy one to talk about. But, you know, thinking a little more broadly, what if, what if there were APIs? Or what if we could regularize the release of code? Or what if we could expose the fairly lengthy backlog of unmet needs, problems, uh, which actually to entrepreneurs represent opportunities. Now, and where are ahead. you getting those problems from? That's an interesting question. Uh, the problems are an, uh, a consequence of the types of uh, uh, segments that we operate in and the services that we provide in the public sector. And so the way, the way public service works in Canada and in British Columbia, many of our program areas operate in, in um, uh, markets that we think are adjacent to global industries. So if you think about the transportation industry, or you think about healthcare, or you think about education, or justice administration, or any of these types of things that we do, um, those, those often are in other parts of the world, um, those could represent opportunities and, and big markets. And so what we think about is if we could be a springboard to allow our own entrepreneurs to create new types of product or service offerings that on the one hand help us, but more importantly, could be built in a way that they could be exported. And and so we wonder about that opportunity, and the Dev Exchange is a way of exploring that together. I've heard from time to time that there's just so much data that it's hard to know what data to work on, what data to expose APIs to, or to make uh, publicly available. And I was wondering, is there something like a table of contents of that data to engage the the private sector to look at that and help them come to those conclusions together? Right. I think uh, we have a reasonable start at what I would call an an index. So uh, everyone could uh, please, you know, go to data.gov.bc.ca and you'll see a fairly extensive catalog that lists uh, not not just, you know, that there is data, uh, but data you can get. 
uh, today. And that's a, that's a bit of a start uh, into that. So another question I have is, I mean, it's an amazing initiative that we have open data and, and then VC Dev Exchange isn't just about open data. It's actually about opening projects and pieces of work and saying, you know, here's, here's a piece of work. This is worth a thousand dollars to us. Uh, if somebody wants to do it for us, or this is 5,000 or 10,000 and, uh, all different sorts of chunks of work that obviously takes time to curate and to, to get out there. But that's amazing. Is this something that's here to stay? Uh, how, how sure can we be that it is? If we're interested in it staying, is there ways uh, that we can help as a community? Sure. I think the, um, you know, the, the ambition um, that, that's under, you know, there's many ideas in play here. But one idea is to facilitate the creation of a very broad, rich, diverse community. So really getting away from the idea of government systems being built kind of behind the firewall somewhere in the bottom end of the enterprise, uh, really how much of that can we do out in the open and how much of that can we do with the intent of creating a community? Um, and, and so in, in terms of its durability, um, we think we're actually just getting started at this idea. It's just starting to come into view for people. Uh, and it has every sign at this point of something that looks like it's going to sustain itself. Um, really optimistic on that front. Very cool. So I know for me, uh, especially with the company that I'm working with, um, I'm fairly proactive in recruiting people that I want to work with. Um, we recruited or we, we got somebody uh, on our team that I really wanted to pair with. And he started on Monday and this week we paired every day. And it's been great. And that's that's something that I feel uh, I got what I wanted. <laughs> and, and that feels good. Um, now, for, I think, the BC Developers Exchange, uh, it, it would be ideal, of course, to have people working on uh, on these projects that you want to work with because it's, it is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. um, how are you actively engaging the public uh, and, or the private sector, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, and ensuring or helping or encouraging people that you want to work with to come and work with you? There's sort of two primary devices we're deploying. So one is we're um, learning how to actually organize public events. So we actually step out and we do co-design sessions over what features should or shouldn't exist in, in the developer exchange uh, and really talk about our ideas going forward to get some direct feedback about them. So uh, we have an idea of inventing a new um, kind of a micro procurement transaction, but really what it's about is a rapid, rapid way to uh, field the team members for an agile team called sprint with us. Uh, and so if we had a really non-traditional approach to that, uh, could we attract people to come in and sit as a, you know, a UI developer or a backend dev or something like that? So what's a really fast way to go about doing that? Yeah. Um, as a, as a former government of Canada employee and a current entrepreneur, um, I, I know that in my head that there does exist a tension between the way that I would have seen the government working site um, and the lean startup methodologies that do tend to drive business, right? Um, because at the end of the day, yeah, what you really want is people engaging. But more importantly, you, you want them to really understand the pain that they're trying to address and be proactive about it. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that tension um, within the organization or even like sort of within the larger organization of the Canadian government or the BC government, I guess? Mm -hmm. um, there is a distinction between working yes. at the federal level and the provincial level, so I'm at the provincial level. Um, the, um, the reason that I get introduced as a co-founder uh, is because there is another person who helped me put this together, and that fellow is David Hume. 
So David Hume is my colleague. And David Hume, for a living, does public engagement for the province of BC. So if you saw the province step out and conduct uh, open dialogue over what the uh, liquor licensing policy should be related to grocery stores, um, that was my colleague, David Hume, that did that. The consultation about the Massey Tunnel. He, he organizes these things. This is what he does for a living. He's also leading um, service design. And, and so really the idea that we're getting there is how to regularize and get good at um, the, the program areas in the province, stepping out, interacting with the citizens over what they need, and then having an agile capability to actually return to the organization and in a couple of sprints, roll out a tiny bit of value. It's not, you know, you're not going to ship a big thing in a couple of weeks, but a little thing. And then to do that in a continuous manner. What's the, what's the next opportunity for that outreach that you're really excited about? The um, biggest one we're getting ready for is the upcoming uh, BC Tech Summit that's coming to the Conference Center in Vancouver. Uh, it was a super awesome show last year, and we're really excited about it this year. And I've had the good fortune of getting some support from our Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. And they run uh, the government's most popular website, Drive BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly popular last week, given the weather uh, in Vancouver, because they have all the highway cameras on their on their website. And they found that there were um, interested parties uh, who were scraping the cameras off their website, repurposing the cameras. So we work with them on the idea of actually releasing the information for that so in, in an API-friendly uh, way. So like it's a hassle to go and scrape someone's website, pull it off, so stand up. But they also launched um, a companion thing, which is an open 511 API for all the road event information. So you can build an app and you can figure out correlation between camera and the fact that the road is closed or it's iced over or you know, it's been an accident or, or closure or something like that. So they've also got weather sensors, temperature sensors. They have all kinds of devices out in the field. So we're uh, really excited about the opportunity to bring a Discovery Day event, which is one of the Dev Exchange ideas for engaging the community. Um, and we're getting ready to organize Day Before Summit. Uh, kind of discovery day event around Internet of Things. And we're going to have the requirements of the Ministry of Transportation uh, to kind of drive that. So it's not just an abstract kind of IoT type thing. There's actually a real potential customer there. That sounds very cool. So the BC Tech Summit, that's coming up March 14th and 15th. 14th, 15th. And you're thinking March 13th or somewhere around there, yeah. have the uh, sort of discovery day. What's mm-hmm. the discovery day all about? And do you have uh, a location for it yet? Uh, I'm Track us on the bcdevexchange.org site. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just launched a new software platform yesterday. Very so cool. uh, I don't know if any of you have been through a software release, but those are always fun. <laughs> uh, so, so we got there, and there's an events page uh, at, the, at, at the bottom there. So stick there, and then we'll see us announce the logistics for, for that event. Uh, so we're going through that. Now, I'm in 17 or 18 slacks right now. Stuart, please, please, please. Let's have a conversation about a global Slack channel, please. But so I wouldn't necessarily recommend starting a Slack, for instance, but it does seem to be the way that tech organizations are reaching out to their community. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any plans along that line or any any other stuff like that? So we're uh, we're we're enthusiastic about the day that we can use Slack. Um, it's important as a government entity that when we subscribe to services on the internet, we actually do some due diligence around what types of terms of service and terms of use we're entering into. Uh, and you can be surprised at uh, the types of things that you can find in terms of use or terms of service. 
uh, and then it, we often get delayed because we have to straighten those things out. They're not necessarily showstoppers, but it's a bunch of work. Um, and as you know, it involves lawyers, and so it, it takes time to get, to get around. And as you've mentioned in the past that you had to go through quite a process with GitHub to be able to have yes. uh, a GitHub account. Yeah, and but we got great support from the GitHub folks, and we actually uh, have a, a slightly modified terms of use with GitHub that uh, made it... Um, okay for us to to get in there and we're actually i think i'm i'm i would say i'm quite feeling pretty good about the province's presence in in github i think if you did some comparisons i think we're i think we're doing okay it's starting to look i think um legit uh we have a series of uh, teams that are that are working there uh and we've got some great examples where so for instance uh last week the environmental assessment office in the province of british columbia launched a brand new web portal and that web portal, it puts all of the projects that have ever been part of the environmental assessment uh, process in the province on a map. You can click on them, and you can read every piece of correspondence, every certificate, every inspection, everything that ever went on around one of those projects. It's all there on the web right now. That's fantastic. You can bop over to the province's GitHub account, and that entire application has been released by the province under Apache 2. Branch it. That is very cool. Uh, something I wanted to point out was uh, with the YBR Dev Slack um, and with our podcast, we've been uh, given a, a generous sponsorship from SameRoom.io, which allows us to connect uh, our Slack to other various communication protocols, whether that be IRC, Google Hangouts, Skype. We've connected with Open Data BC. We've connected with Mozilla. We've connected with some of the other local Slack channels to really have an inclusive community. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that it allows us to do is some people don't feel comfortable maybe being under a code of conduct, for example. However benign that code of conduct may be, it is still a set of rules being imposed. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to, uh, if they are uncomfortable with that, connect to certain channels via maybe their own Skype account on their phone. And we found actually very good success with that. I don't know what would be involved in trying to get government connected to that, but that's something and these types of things that it seems very difficult um, to work with some of the bureaucracy uh, and to do so in a, in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's something that as a tech community, we can help to address. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So one of the ideas behind the developer exchange is it is it clarifies and gives you a starting point for some of those interactions, right? We found it's it's pretty tough sledding for an entrepreneur to just cold call around for various random government departments, kind of trying to bump into someone who's who's going to help you. Um, I, I don't I don't pretend like we can tolerate a flood of that kind of interaction. We're a tiny little agile team, uh, but really the the idea was uh, to set up a way that we could get into a co-creation, co-design, co-innovation equation through the Dev Exchange. Now, how does that um, work in terms of so so as a as a very agile organization ourselves, um, we couldn't survive without open source software. We we bring on something new. It seems every couple of days. Because you see a problem and you have to solve it now. You don't want to spend three months writing up a custom solution, right? Mm -hmm. So um, do you feel that you're slowed down by the kind of restrictions you're under? Do you feel that like how um, when you're working with these third-party coders and entrepreneurs and, and what have you, mm -hmm. um, are they under the same restrictions? I mean, a beauty of using things like GitHub uh, is that it's very transparent. So you can see who's doing what, 
and who's contributing to what. And we've got uh, a department. Uh, they're the Environmental Reporting Department. They're part of the Ministry of Environment. Awesome little team there, um, Stephanie and uh, Andy. Uh, and they do their work. They report on water quality, air quality. They do like environmental uh, kind of metrics and, and, and reporting. This is what they do. Uh, and they work in R. They're data scientists and analytics. So um, they have been publishing their projects through the Dev Exchange and onto GitHub. And recently they um, went out to the community to get some help to improve one of their packages uh, that needed to be tuned up so that it better complied with some international standards or, or, or something. And so using the Dev Exchange, they were able to stage that, tee up a little micro-procurement transaction, and then they used their network of contacts uh, through the schools and Twitter and everything else to try and get eyeballs to, to, to come to this thing. And uh, someone stepped up and put a proposal in and uh, wrote the code, and uh, we turned around and paid the person for, for, for their work. Uh, and the, the track record of that is all sitting there on GitHub, right? It's a nice little example of sort of breaking down the traditional ideas as to how government does these types of things and showing, like, we can do this in a completely relevant, modern way, um, step right into the places where the developers live and expect to be. Like, we got to go there. We're not going to drag them into, in, into the government. Uh, and then do business. One of the things I observed of other governments doing open is they you could almost see that they had this idea that what was cool about it is they could get stuff for free. And I really like the openness and I like the speed and everything else, but I think we're operating w with a bit of a value that we like. We, we think we should um, reciprocate. Like we're getting something of value and, and we want to provide something of value in return. And sometimes that's money. Uh, but we also found that helping someone develop a visible reputation can also have value, and it's a, it's a way to get started and, and, and so on. So there's a variety of uh, benefits, I think, that come from working in this new open way. Is there any sort of collaboration or knowledge sharing with uh, other provinces or other uh, cities or countries that are doing something similar? Uh, not formalized. Uh, we use our web browsers to race the other teams that are doing this on the net. So uh, you can check out in the U.S. there's been a group called 18F. So you can Google 18F comes out of the U.S., the Obama administration uh, uh, in there. Uh, so they have some good ideas. We kind of stole those. Uh, I, I think they might have taken a few of our, our things. And there's kind of back-channel ways. Uh, we haven't really gone overboard kind of trying to formalize those engagements because it takes time and energy to do that. And there's enough work to do uh, just to train uh, the B.C. government programs how to do this. So um, I have to be careful how much time uh, we kind of put into that. But So if someone wants to get involved, um, what's a good way to get started? Uh, how would they go about it? And what sort of things are there maybe in the pipeline to be looking forward to? Right. Um, so please, you know, call up the devexchange.org site. You can sign up. Um, you can enjoy getting on our spam list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone would like that. But um, we have had that problem. How do you know what's going on? So if you sign up and then we'll be able to kind of uh, buzz you with things, watch for our events and feel free to um, push your ideas to us like you can email them in you can put issues into our github repos you can uh like let's learn together how to collaborate this is sort of the idea um i would do another little shout out for a project that's going on uh and so there's a team um uh, forming up what's called a center for data uh, innovation and there's a group in the government called uh, bc statistics uh, division and what they've been doing right now is sponsoring a sort of open contest around how data scientists could visualize um the uh housing 
uh, information mm-hmm. for the for the province. So housing is kind of a hot topic in BC, uh, and and that builds on open data. So there's a bunch of uh, open data sources that you need to consume. This is all staged on on GitHub, and they just went through. I think they got 35 or 40 something proposals. They gated that down to I think five of the best ones. The the five are driving to do kind of minimum viable product build for their thing. There's intent from us to actually pay them for that part, and then they're going to down uh, gate that down to the uh, best one uh, near the near the tech summit. So for people who want to follow along or want to reach out and, and get in touch, what are the best ways to do that? Uh, is it GitHub? Is it the BC Developers Exchange website? Both. Yeah, you'll you'll see the way it works. Like if you just want to come talk to us dev exchangers, mm-hmm. right? You probably come to the dev exchange site. Uh, but if if it's working, you'll you'll be you'll see program areas registered. You'll see their projects, and you'll get bounced out to GitHub, and that gives you a way to kind of get more focused attention on a specific item. And so, so that's uh, bcdevexchange.org yes. and uh, GitHub slash bc GitHub.com slash bcgov bcgov bcgov. Very cool. That's right. Okay, well, uh, Peter Watkins of the BC Developers Exchange, thank you very much for being on the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YVR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Devs. Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.